Before we begin this episode, I want to take a minute and honor the memory of Brianna Taylor, who was murdered in uh, by police in Louisville, Kentucky, and did not receive justice yesterday in a grand jury trial that charged one officer with wanton endangerment for shooting bullets that happened to go into a different house, but couldn't find justice for Miss Taylor. So we're just going to take a minute of silence before this episode begins.
and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestis for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam, that's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at RadicalNewsRadioHour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the new Minnesota Legislature House Special Committee on Racial Justice. And we'll be listening to a segment on maternal child health morbidity and mortality from that first meeting held on Tuesday, September 22nd. Today, we'll begin by listening to segments from the first meeting of the House Select Committee on Racial Justice. To begin, we'll be uh, hearing the meeting's opening remarks, beginning with remarks from Representative Ruth Richardson, a DFLer from Mendota Heights, Representative Lisa DeMuth, a Republican from Cold Springs, and Representative Rena Moran, a DFLer representing this Frogtown community. Members, the co-chairs and vice chair would like to welcome you to the select committee and make a few opening remarks. First, thank you to the members who accepted the invitation to join the committee and we appreciate you making this a priority. I want to acknowledge that this work and a focus on racial justice is long overdue. 2020 has shined a bright light on racial inequities in our communities and in our systems. The COVID-19 pandemic and the tragic death of George Floyd were catalysts for House Resolution 1 declaring racism a public health crisis. But we know that the public health crisis did not begin in 2020. We are grappling with centuries of systemic racism. While we know we cannot undo over 400 years of systemic racism in a single committee, this committee is an important first step forward. It is an acknowledgement that racism exists, that it is systemic, and that racism is harmful. It is an acknowledgement that racism is deadly and has an impact on life expectancy. It is an acknowledgement that we need an intersectional approach to racial justice. It is an acknowledgement that racism is costly and is impacting commerce adversely. It is also an acknowledgement that as long as racism exists, we're not living up to the promise of equality and not everyone is afforded an equitable opportunity to thrive and prosper. In order to make progress, we must acknowledge a problem exists. We must have difficult conversations and recognize the conversations are difficult because something is deeply wrong. We must also engage with the community, including engaging with black, indigenous, and people of color who are closest to the pain of these complex issues. In the coming weeks, we'll have a series of informational hearings on racism to learn from data-driven experts. Instead of a little time for public testimony at each hearing, we're dedicating an entire hearing on October 13th for public testi testimony. And that'll be an opportunity for the public to share personal experiences and recommendations as well. We also anticipate that the committee will develop a set of recommendations as well. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Vice Chair Damon. Thank you, Chair Richardson. And also thank you to Co-Chair Moran. 
It's my honor to serve as vice chair of this committee. When House Resolution 1 declaring racism as a public health crisis was passed in July during our second special session, it opened the opportunity to bring understanding and to identify areas of disparity and, and advance equity. Healthcare access and healthcare outcomes and our achievement gap in our state's educational system are two of the many areas that will be analyzed. Working in a collaborative and bipartisan way will move our state forward to benefit all Minnesotans. I'm looking forward to working with this committee, the members, as we tackle this difficult yet very important topic. Minnesota has moved to a national spotlight, and I believe now is the time for us to lead with positive and sustainable solutions. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Vice Chair Danath. Representative, uh, Co-Chair Moran. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is um, an honor to be here um, and to co-chair this select committee. I wanna just personally say how grateful I am for everyone who was present today, who volunteered to be a part of this select committee. That means a lot. I, I just want to state that, you know, a select committee on racism, looking at racial justice within our healthcare system, in all our systems, um, is, is not an easy fit, a feat. And it's going to be a quite heavy subject area. So I just want to say that, that we recognize that this is not an easy subject for some people to talk about, to learn about, to hear about. Um, and to acknowledge maybe in some ways. Um, but, <clears throat> um, but for many of us, it is a reality that has been a part of our lives for generations. And so it is really is a great opportunity for each one of us to all learn and grow in, from the information that we may hear. I want us to be open to that learning, you know? As legislators, I recognized early in this process that I did not, do not know everything. And some of my best work have come from listening to others. And so this is that same type of opportunity that we have at this moment is to learn and hear and be engaged with the presenters that we have uh, worked so hard as a team to put before this select committee. Uh, and so I want to also state that the pandemic, um, COVID-19 has lifted inequities that we see within our healthcare system and within so many of our other systems, but has also created kind of like an opportunity here that we our legislators are doing our hearing that we found the outlet and a possibility in a way to still carry on the business of the house by doing our business through Zoom. It also created an opportunity for so many who otherwise would not have been engaged in this legislative process to be engaged in this legislative process. And so I'm gonna ask everyone a favor because for me, this subject area is really as personal. It's personal to me as a mother, uh, as a grandmother, and more important, uh, personal for me as a black mother and a black grandmother. And so I want us to be engaged in this process. So I'm gonna ask a favor from everyone that if you are not driving or in any way compromising yourself, I really would like to see your face. 
And um, so if at all possible, please turn your camera on so that we can see you. More importantly, so that the public can see you and know you and learn who you, who we are. Because believe it or not, they don't always know that. So this is a great opportunity. So I, I know uh, Representative Heather says she's, uh, she's in, um, doing some work right now where she cannot be present on her camera. But if you can, please turn on your camera. Uh, that would be helpful. And with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Co-Chair Ruth Richardson, who will be chairing uh, today's um, select committee hearing. Up next is the presentation on maternal child mortality that happened during that meeting. Speaking is Dr. Camera Phyllis Jones, a PhD and epidemiologist um, from Atlanta, I believe. You can watch the entire presentation and committee meeting at theuptake.org, who provided this audio for the show and where I also work as executive director. So I in recognizing that you all have declared racism to be a public health crisis, at least on the House side, entitled my testimony, Achieving Health Equity, Naming Racism and Moving to Action. I'm going to start with a definition of health equity that is closely related to the Healthy People 2020 definition to which I contributed, but also differs in important ways. So this is a three-part definition. What is health equity? How do we get there? And how is health equity related to health disparities? I should say by way of introduction, and maybe you've seen a bio or not, that I am a family physician. I am a PhD epidemiologist. I'm a past president of the American Public Health Association. Uh, last year, I was uh, the 2019-2020 Evelyn Green Davis Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. And I have taught at the Harvard School of Public Health, at Morehouse School of Medicine, at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, and spent 14 and a half years at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So all of that work informs what I'm going to be sharing with you right now, just so that you know who I am, like not just uh, Josephine Blow off the streets. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I, I thought you guys might be like, well, who is she to improve on the Healthy People 2020 definition? So like it's, it's coming from there. Um, so first of all, what is health equity? Well, health equity is assurance of the conditions for optimal health for all people. That's my definition of health equity. We, when we developed the Healthy People 2020 definition, asserted that health equity is attainment of the highest level of health for all people. And I still know that that is our goal. But what troubles me about that as a definition of health equity is what if we hit that last Sunday? Are we done? And it became clear to me that health equity is not an outcome, that health equity is actually a process. And which process? Assurance which is actually one of the three core functions of public health that were identified by the Institute of Medicine when it was the Institute of Medicine, not the National Academy of Medicine. But a long time ago, assurance along with assessment and policy development are the three core functions of public health. And assurance of what? Of the conditions for optimal health, which now you'll hear people talking about as the social determinants of health. And when they say that thing, social determinants of health, what do we mean? We mean those determinants of health and illness that are outside of the individual, beyond our individual genes, and beyond our individual behaviors 
These are the context of our lives. And health equity is assurance of those conditions for optimal health for whom? For all people. That's what makes it equity. How do we get there? Well, achieving health equity requires at least these three things. Valuing all individuals and populations equally, recognizing and rectifying historical injustices, and providing resources according to need. So you value all individuals and populations equally, but if you value them equally, then you provide resources according to need. Just as if you love your children equally, but you don't give them all the same size bike or all of the same anything, right? And actually, I think that these three principles for achieving health equity, if you're trying to figure out, is the resolution that we're about to pass, you know, or the law that's about to be implemented, is it about health equity? It should address all three of these things. And really, when I think about it, providing resources according to need is the place where you start, because when you do that, then you are recognizing and rectifying historical injustices. And when you recognize and recognize recognize and rectify historical injustices, that is one way of valuing all individuals and populations equally. There are many ways. Think about the word value. When you value somebody, then you invest in them, you protect them, you cherish them, you celebrate them, you listen to them and invite their opinions. So, I mean, we could, between the 22 of us, we could generate a hundred words for valuing. But anyway, this is a little long on that point. Just to say that if you want to say, are we doing health equity? You should be a, doing these three things. And then how is health equity related to health disparities? Well, health disparities will be eliminated when health equity is achieved. Health disparities are the differences in outcome that we see. The differences in the impact of you know, uh, COVID-19 disproportionately on communities of color and Black and Indigenous and Latinx and Pacific Islander and other communities of color. The differences in the numbers of our babies dying before their first birthday or the numbers of our women dying in, within a year of a pregnancy. So those are the outcomes. Health equity is all the stuff about opportunity, exposure to risk or protection from risk, all of the stuff that came before. This is our setting. So now we enter, when we start recognizing racial ethnic health disparities, that's how we enter the health equity conversation with understanding racism. When I was president of the American Public Health Association four years ago in 2016, I launched our association and as many other partners in our state affiliates and other organizations, communities, everybody as would join us on a national campaign against racism with three tasks. The first, to name racism, because if we never say the word racism in the context of widespread denial, which is our national context, then we're complicit with that denial. So it's so important to name racism. It's so important that HR1 said that racism is a public health crisis, putting you all firmly on record, acknowledging, first of all, that racism exists and that it's a problem. But then once we name racism, that's the first necessary step, but it is insufficient. We must go beyond that to ask the question, how is racism operating here in my jurisdiction, in my child's school, in my workplace, with regard to police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women, with regard to the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color? And I'm going to go more deeply into that, but what we're doing, I'm going to give you tools actually to Examine how is racism operating here, looking at elements of decision-making, which will then allow us to identify levers for intervention, targets for action, and then 
We need to organize and strategize to act. The legislature, you guys, of course, have a lot of power, but there has to always be community involvement and all kinds of groups and, you know, everybody coming together, organizing and strategizing to act. And I recognize that Minnesota is one of the four states, 25 counties. And so there are three, I think, in, well, I don't know how many cities and counties, there are four jurisdictions in your state and then three others. But there are four states in the country, last time I looked, about a month, not a month ago, a week ago, four states, 25 counties, and 61 cities that have made similar declarations that racism is a public health crisis. Very important. Now, to get the Minnesota Senate to join in, to get the governor to sign this, to get everybody in Minnesota, to get everybody in those other states that are not yet in red to join in, we, there are four key messages. The first is that racism exists. I'm going to give you a story to help you even talk to your family members. I hope that you'll remember. I'm going to share two stories with you today. And I hope that you'll remember these stories, share them with your family members, share them with people, you know, um, in your district, if you can, you know, I can tell you how to do that, but that racism exists. The second of four key messages is that racism is a system, not an individual character flaw or personal moral, moral failing. The third is that racism saps the strength of the whole society. And the fourth is that we can act to dismantle racism and put in its place a system in which all people can know and develop to their full potential. So the rest of my talk is going to be to give you just snapshots of things um, to help equip you to convincingly understand and convey these key messages. The first tool to help us understand that racism exists is actually one of my teaching stories, my allegories on issues of race and racism that I often deploy. I mean, that's if I would say my superpower is to break down complex issues in terms of allegories that have been sparked by something that I saw with my own real eyes. So I call this allegory dual reality, a restaurant saga, and it was sparked by my experience as a first year medical student. And I've already told you the moral of the stories that racism exists. So this is what happened to me. As a first year medical student, of course, I was very studious, you know, uh, very diligent. So I wake up early on a Saturday morning and my job on that Saturday is to hit the books. So I'm hitting the books, studying hard. It gets to be about afternoon and some friends come over. And do they distract me? No, all of us get together studying long and hard. And now it's getting late and we're getting hungry and I have no food in the apartment, which was quite typical of me. So my friends understood. They said, never mind, Kamara, let's go into town and find something to eat. So we do. We go into town and we find a restaurant and we walk in and we sit down and the menus are presented and we order our food and the food is served. And here we are eating not a very illuminating story about racism yet. But as I sat there eating with my friends, I looked across the room and I noticed a sign. And that sign was a startling revelation to me about racism. So now I've intrigued you. And you're wondering, first of all, where did you go to medical school? And second of all, what did the sign say? Well, what did the sign say? The sign said open. So now maybe I've lost many of you. So let me recap. Here we are sitting in a restaurant eating. I look across the room. I see a sign that says open. If I hadn't thought anything more about it, I would have assumed that other hungry people could walk in, sit down, order their food and eat. 
But because I knew something about the two-sided nature of those signs, I recognized that now, in fact, the restaurant was closed due to the hour, but that it was firmly closed and that other hungry people just a few feet away from me, but on the other side of that sign, would not be able to come and sit down, order their food and eat. And that's when I recognized that racism structures open, closed signs in our society. That racism structures, if you will, a dual reality. And for those who are sitting inside the restaurant at the table of opportunity eating, and they look up and they see a sign that says open, they don't even recognize that there's a two-sided sign going on because it's difficult for any of us to recognize a system of inequity that privileges us. So, for example, it is difficult for men to recognize male privilege and sexism. It is difficult for white Americans to recognize white privilege and racism. In fact, it's difficult for all Americans to recognize our American privilege in the global context. But those on the outside are very well aware that there's a two-sided sign going on because it proclaims close to them, but they can look through the window and see people inside eating. So back inside the restaurant, to those who ask, is there really a two-sided sign? Does racism really exist? I say, I know it's hard for you to know when you only see open. In fact, that's part of your privilege, not to have to know. But once you do know, you can choose to act. So it's not a scary thing to name racism. It's actually an empowering thing to name racism. It doesn't even compel you to act, but it does equip you to act so that if you care about those on the other side of the sign, which is an if, well, you could even talk to the restaurant owner who is, after all, inside with you. And you could say, restaurant owner, there are hungry people outside. Why don't you open the door again? Let them come in. You will make more money and owe oh, the conversations we could have. Or maybe what you'll do is pass through through the window. Or maybe you'll try to tear down that sign or break through the door. But at least what you won't be doing is sitting back saying, huh, wonder why those people don't just come on in and sit down and eat. Because you'll understand something about the two-sided nature of that sign. So I tell this story when I just have four minutes to share with people that, yes, racism exists and it's creating a two-sided or multi-sided sign in our society, creating a dual or multifaceted reality. And in fact, racism is not just the sign, it's the sign, it's the door, it's the lock, all of it. And actually for people, I, I started a three-hour conversation once with this one question. So I'm going to throw the question out to you, but we're not going to talk about it for three hours right now. But the question I asked once in a community setting was how could people who are born inside the restaurant know something about the two-sided nature of that sign? And it was a three-hour conversation because actually there are many ways to know. But what I have to say right now is I'm heartened that over these past five to six months, more people who were born inside the restaurant have gotten a glimpse of the fact that it's a two-sided sign going on, that it says open to them, but closed on the other side. More people are naming racism as you all have a as a you know state house have done. And people are you know putting together the words structural racism, systemic racism. More people are affirming that black lives matter as opposed to saying, what are those people saying outside? Don't they know all lives matter? So more people are getting a sense of that. But my warning is that the the baseline positioning in our nation of racism denial, that staunch racism denial is so seductive that if we just say a thing, 
six months from now, we may forget why we said that thing. We might fall back into what I'm describing as the sleepiness or somnolence of racism denial. So it is important to act. It's important to say a thing. That's important. We have to name racism. It is necessary, but insufficient. What we need to do is start tearing down the sign, dismantling the lock, take the door off the hinges. We must act because if we start acting, we will not forget why we are acting. I'm going to quickly then share with you my definition of racism. I'm going to share it with you as one sentence and then go up back and pick up on four important parts of this definition. So when I say, when I talk about racism at all, I'm talking about a system, a system of doing what? A system of structuring opportunity and assigning value. And on what basis? Based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race in this country. What are the impacts of this system? Well, racism unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, excuse me, some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. I often talk deeply into each section of that, but realizing that I have a limited amount of time, I wanted you to see the whole definition and then just pick up the most Four, four most important parts of this definition. First of all, we have to recognize that racism is a system. It's not an individual character flaw. It's not a personal moral failing. It is not even a psychiatric illness, as some people have suggested, although it can manifest itself in all of those ways. But in its essence, it's a system of power. This system does two things. It structures opportunity and it assigns value. The base of, of that opportunity structuring and value assignment is so-called race, the social interpretation of how one looks, because we must understand that race is not biology, it's not even culture, it is not social class, although there is an association between race and social class in this country because of structural racism. I'm going to go into that in just a minute. But race is just the on-the-street classification of people without somebody asking, excuse me, how do you self-identify? Or excuse me, where were you born? Where were your parents born? Or even, excuse me, may I have a little bit of your blood? I have a genetic hypothesis. And it is that socially assigned race that has had, it's the substrate on which racism operates both historically and today to structure opportunity and assign value. The fourth important point is that racism has three impacts. If you ask most people, what does racism do? They'll say, okay, if I understand racism, it says, yeah, it unfairly disadvantages some, but every unfair disadvantage has its reciprocal unfair advantage, which is, um, we hardly ever talk about in this country, the you know, unearned white privilege. We hardly ever talk about that because it makes some people, especially some people who are living as white, uncomfortable. And I say living as white because we understand that, that race is the social interpretation of how one looks. And I have used, in the past, I have said, if I just made somebody uncomfortable by saying that racism unfairly advantages other individuals and, com and communities, if I've made somebody uncomfortable by talking about unearned white privilege, I used to say, please shake it off, stay with me, I'm going to tell you more stories. I don't say that anymore. Because I have come to learn that for all of us, for me and for all of us, the edge of our comfort is our growing edge. So I say, if you feel uncomfortable, I invite you to lean into that discomfort because that is all of our growing edge. But the third thing is that racism is sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. And whether we are constraining 
you know, black and indigenous and other people of color lives slowly by, by not vigorously investing in the full excellent public education of all of our kids, because, you know, the blinders of some decision makers have made them believe there's no genius in the barrios or the ghettos or in the reservations or, you know, in the resettlement areas. Or we're slowly constraining, you know, the the brilliance and the leadership and the and the, you know, creativity and the love and all of that of black and brown and, and indigenous peoples by being complacent with the wholesale warehousing disproportionately of so many black and brown men in our prison system, or whether it's in a moment with a police officer's gun or a police officer's knee, that is not just affecting the life that's been lost, the brilliance that's been gone, or the, the family that is fractured forever, or even the communities who are just bracing ourselves for the next occurrence. This represents sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. Just one more thing I need to say, and I know I, I, I don't want to eat up all of my time, but there are people in this country, many people, I'd say most people in this country who think they're two states of being, disadvantaged and normal. And the reason that people think there's disadvantaged and normal is that we as a nation are ahistorical. And so people do not understand that their so-called normal is built up on a whole mountain of unfair advantage. I would love to engage with you all on questions on that. Very quickly, because I'm a public health person and I hear that you all have a lot of interest in health as well as, of course, in education and, and you know, uh, the justice system and housing and all of that. But as a physician, I tried to figure out how could racism turn into health outcomes and what can we do about it? So I described three levels of racism, institutionalized or structural, personally mediated and internalized. So I'd like to just quickly define each of these, give you very quickly some examples of how they can impact health and other aspects of life, and then illustrate them with my, uh, another of my teaching stories, my Gardner's Tale allegory. Institutionalized or structural racism, it's the same thing. I use the terms interchangeably now. I, the paper on which this is based was published 20 years ago. I've been telling this story and this framework for 30 years. This is how old this struggle has been. But institutionalized structural racism is the system, if you will, the constellation of structures, policies, practices, norms, and values, which taken together result in differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. This is the kind of racism that does not require an identifiable perpetrator because it's been institutionalized in our laws and customs and background norms. This is the kind of racism that shows up as inherited disadvantage or as reciprocal inherited advantage. And we see it in terms of material conditions as well as in terms of access to power. So differential access to quality, housing, ed excellent educational opportunities, equal employment opportunities, the same level of income at the same level of employment by race, Clearly, those things impact health. Differential access to medical facilities, not just you know, proximity access, but insurance access or linguistic access. Differential access to a clean environment and the very well-documented disproportionate placement of toxic dump sites or bus transfer stations in communities of color. These are all examples of how institutionalized or structural racism manifest in our material conditions. In terms of power, differential access to information which could be health information or even information about our own histories. Differential access to resources, not just capital resources, but social networking resources and knowing somebody on the board. Differential access to voice and media, voice and government and the like. Although I can't dwell on this point, often I am asked, look at that top set of examples where you talk about housing, education, employment, income. Dr. Jones, isn't that what we call social class? Are you talking about 
racism? Like, why do you have that on a slide about racism? Are you really talking about racism? Are you actually talking about social class? That's a very important question. The, the, the telegraphic answer is that it does not just so happen that marginalized, you know, that people of color, for example, are overrepresented in poverty while white people are overrepresented in wealth in this nation. That's not just a happenstance. And for each marginalized or stigmatized or oppressed group of color, there's been some initial historical injustice. I usually go through a litany of about six or eight of them. I would just say that for, for indigenous people in this country, the initial historical injustice was the taking of the land, the near genocide, and then moving survivors to reserve lands. And often, and there's something good found under one reservation loop, you have to pick the people up and move them somewhere else. For people of African descent, it started with the you know, kidnapping of West African people, our importation across the Atlantic with tremendous loss of life in the Middle Passage, and then for their survivors and their progeny for generations, what I describe as the coerced usury of our unpaid labor for centuries to build this country. But then when people hear me talking about that, they say, Dr. Jones, you know, there you go talking about slavery. Dr. Jones, we all recognize that slavery was an unfortunate chapter in our nation's history. But Dr. Jones, the enslaved people were emancipated by 1865, and we are now in 2020. That makes that 155 years ago, Dr. Jones, all else being equal, don't you think the impact of slavery would have washed out by now? But the key phrase is in the question, all else being equal. And all else has not been equal since 1865. All else still is not equal today. And there are present day contemporary structural factors perpetuating that injustice and all the other injustices that I did not have the time to litanize for you. And these present day contemporary structural factors are part and parcel of institutionalized or structural racism. So when you ask me, am I talking about racism or am I really talking about social class? My response is that structural racism explains why we even see an association between social class and race in this country. I could talk so more onto this slide, but I'm not going to. I just need to say that structural racism can be through acts of doing as well as acts of not doing, acts of commission as well as acts of omission. And very often, structural racism shows up as lack of action, inaction in the face of need. The second level of racism, personally mediated racism, I define as differential assumptions about the abilities, motives, and intents of others by race, and then differential actions based on those assumptions. This is what most people think of when they hear the word racism, that somebody did something to somebody. And includes the different idea, which is the prejudice, and the different action, which is the discrimination. Many ways that this can impact health. I know I don't have to talk to you guys about police brutality, physician disrespect, shopkeeper vigilance, waiter indifference, teacher devaluation. I wish I could go into more detail in each of these, but each of these where assumptions are made about people's intent or people's ability to follow a physician's recommendation, all of these things. Or even when a teacher looks at a young child and thinks that child can't learn and puts them off in the attention deficit disorder track where that child will never even know their full potential, much less develop to their full potential. All of these things can impact health and well-being. Um, like institutionalized or structural racism, this level can also be through acts of doing as well as acts of not doing. But even more important is to recognize that this level of racism can be unintentional as well as intentional. You do not have to have intended to do something racist to have had a racist impact. The third level of racism, internalized racism, I define here from the point of view of members of stigmatized races as acceptance by members of stigmatized races of negative messages about our own abilities and intrinsic worth. It shows up as self-devaluation, feeling maybe I'm really not as good as, maybe I shouldn't try to graduate from high school or apply to that college or try to run for that office or live in that neighborhood. 
white man's height is colder syndrome from my parents' generation. What it might mean is that if I am black, maybe I, and I need a lawyer, I might seek out a white lawyer over a black lawyer. Or if my lemonade were warm, I might go way down the street to get the white man's ice over the black man's ice, deeply believing that the white man's ice is colder. It turns into resignation, helplessness, hopelessness, which turns into a lot of self-destructive health behaviors. Sometimes it's manifested as not even registering to vote. We're not voting even if we are registered. And I, I know that all of you all as elected officials are trying to push everybody to vote, that there be no limitations to citizens voting. It's really about members of stigmatized races accepting the limitations to our own full humanity of the box into which we've been placed. So I'm very quickly going to share with you uh, my Gardner's Tale allegory. I'm going to stop sharing um, just to um, so that I can be big on your screen. And then when I finish sharing the Gardner's Tale, I'm going to go back and share at least one slide. There were other things I wanted to to also share, but I, I recognize that I've sort of been eating into my time. So after the Gardner's Tale, I'll go back and share one more thing. And then you all can tell me if you want uh, four more minutes of, of stuff. Okay. So, so this allegory has, is, I, it's based on my own real life experience. So first, let me tell you what happened in my life. And then I'm going to make it a story about racism and, you know, illustrating these three levels and telling us what can we do. So my husband and I have been married for about a year when we moved back down to Baltimore for me to finish my PhD at Hopkins. We bought our first freestanding house, cute little house with a big wraparound porch with flower boxes dotted all on the porch. And we bought the house in October, not really the time to plant in Baltimore. So we waited. But when spring came, my husband, who loves to garden, ran out with our marigold seeds, going to decorate our cute little house. But then he came right back in. He said, Kamara, some of these boxes have dirt in them, but some of these boxes are empty. I need to go down to the gardening store. So he does. He goes to the gardening store and he hauls back big old bags of potting soil. And then we fill up those empty boxes. Then we take equal numbers of our marigold seeds and you plant them in the boxes and we water each of the boxes equally. And then because I'm not the gardener in the family, I'm exhausted. So I'm just going to sit back and be delighted. Well, three weeks later, I walk out of my front door onto my porch and I finally pay attention to these flower boxes. And what I saw made me literally stop in my tracks because what I saw made me think that we had planted completely different species in some boxes versus the others, because some of the boxes were full of plants and they were tall, vigorous looking plants. And some of the boxes just had a few plants in them and they were kind of scrawny and scraggly looking. And then I realized what had happened. That potting soil that my husband had bought turned out to be rich, fertile soil so that every single seed planted in the potting soil had sprouted. The strong seed had grown very tall and vigorous, but even the weak seed had made it halfway up. But that old soil that we had found there in those boxes turned out to be poor, rocky soil. So the weak seed plant in the poor rocky soil just died. But even the strong seed in that poor rocky soil struggled to make it to a middling height. And some of you guys, I'm not looking at you right now, so maybe you're nodding. Maybe you're gardeners. Maybe you have composted half of your garden, and maybe you've seen this image with your own real eyes. The image, of course, is about the importance of the soil, the importance of the environment. But now I'm going to take this image, and I'm going to make it a story about racism by introducing a gardener. So now... We have a gardener who has two flower boxes, one which she knows to have rich, fertile soil, and one which she knows to have poor, rocky soil. And she has seed for the same kind of flowers, except some of the seed is going to produce pink blossoms, and some of the seed is going to produce red blossoms. 
And the gardener prefers red over pink. So what does she do? She takes the red seed, puts it in rich, fertile soil, pink seed in the poor rocky soil. And three weeks later in her flower boxes, she sees what I saw in mine. In that rich, fertile soil, all the red seed sprouts, strong red seed grows tall and vigorous, and even the weak red seed makes it halfway up. In the poor rocky soil, the weak pink seed dies. Here comes a strong pink seed struggling to make it to a middling height. And then in those flower boxes, those flowers go to seed. And then the next year, the same thing happens. And then those flowers go to seed. And year after year, the same thing happens. And then finally, about 10 years later, Garden is looking at her flower boxes and she says, you know, I was right to prefer red over pink. So we interrupt the story there to say that the first part of this story illustrates how institutionalized or structural racism works, where you have the initial historical injustice of the separation of the seed into the two types of soil, the contemporary structural factors of the flower boxes, keeping the soil separate, and then through inaction in the face of need, perpetuation of the inequity. But let's pick the story back up and say, well, where is personally mediated racism in the garden? Well, the gardener's looking over at the red flowers thinking, oh, red is so beautiful. And then she looks at the pink flowers and she says, oh, those pink flowers sure are scrawny and scraggly. So she plucks off the pink blossoms before they can even go to seed. Or maybe she notices that a pink seed has blown into the rich fertile soil. So she plucks it out before it can establish itself which is some of the anti-affirmative action stuff that goes on. And where would internalized racism be in the garden? Well, the red flowers are just living their lives, enjoying being red, many of them not acknowledging or perhaps not even understanding that they're benefiting from enriched soil. The pink flowers are looking over at red, thinking red is mighty fine and wishing with all their hearts that they too could be red. And here come the bees, minding their own business, collecting nectar, but pollinating at the same time. So here comes a bee into one of the pink flowers and then to another pink flower and to this pink flower. This flower's like, get away from me, bee. Don't bring me any of that pink pollen. I prefer the red because the pink flower has internalized that red is better than pink. So now the question arises, what do we do to set things right in this garden? Well, we could start by addressing the internalized racism. We could go over to the pink flowers and we could say, pink is beautiful, power to the pink. And that is an important intervention. But if that's all we do, it's not going to change the situation in which those pink flowers find themselves. So you might say, okay, well, let's address the personally mediated racism. Let's have a conversation with the gardener or better yet, a workplace multicultural workshop for the gardener. So we do that. And in our workshop, we say, dear gardener, would you please stop plucking those pink flowers? And maybe she will, and maybe she won't. But even if she does, it's still not going to change the situation in which the pink flowers find themselves. If we really want to set things right in this garden, we must address the structural or institutionalized racism. We have to either break down the boxes and mix up the soil, or if you want to keep separate boxes, that's all right too, although it makes it easier for that same gardener to continue segregating resources going forward. But if you keep separate boxes, it means you must enrich that poor rocky soil until it is as rich as the rich fertile soil. And when you do that, the pink flowers will flourish to be looking beautiful, grand and glorious so that in that intervention on the structural racism, you will also address the internalized racism because pink will no longer be looking over at red, thinking that it's better or wanting to be red. And in that intervention, you may also address the personally mediated racism. Now, the original gardener may have to go to her grave preferring red over pink, but her children who grow up and see the flowers equally beautiful will be less likely to have that kind of attitude. So this story has been to illustrate these three levels of racism to strongly suggest that if we want to set things right in the garden, we must at least address the structural or institutionalized racism, um, but good to address all the levels at the same time. And when, we, and, and when we do, you know, when we address the structural, the other levels may take care of themselves. I just have one more question that I need to um, raise for you all. And then I think I must stop. I had some other important things that you can ask me about as a question. But here's a very important question. Who is the gardener? 
This is the crux of the question, in fact. Who is the gardener? Because the gardener is the one that I gave the power to decide, the power to act, and control of resources, which are actually the elements of self-determination. Who is the gardener? Well, in our system, in this country, government is a huge part of the, of the gardener. You guys, you guys are a huge part of the gardener. Not the only part, though, because media, foundations, corporations, communities, to the extent they have self-determination, but whoever the gardener is, it is dangerous when the gardener is allied with one group. I painted her red. That's why she prefers red over pink. And it is dangerous when she is not concerned with equity, when she can look at her flower boxes and think that her garden is beautiful, thank you, because she is not even counting the pink flowers as part of her garden. So our challenge is, what do we do about the gardener? Do we make the gardener striped or polka dotted or fuchsia? Do the pink flowers have to grow or recruit their own gardener? Two, the last two questions, two things I'm going to say are two questions that have come up to me before. The first was, Dr. Jones, why should the red flowers share their soil? When I heard this question, I loved the question because it showed me the power of this story to start conversations about racism between you and me, you know, uh, that, you know, conversations about racism that would be difficult if we were trying to talk about racism between you and me, because now we can talk about gardener and flower pots. So I encourage you guys to share this story widely in your networks. But my answer to that question, why should the red flowers share their soil, is that actually that soil does not belong to the red flowers. It belongs to the whole garden. The second question, what if that's not the original gardener? What if that's the gardener's great, 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 great grandchild? Here we are. And the great, 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 great grandchild has always seen the flowers looking like that, may not even think there's a problem to be solved. So very quickly, first of three parts, we must make the differences in the height and vigor of the pink and red flowers a problem requiring urgent solution. It must be on the agenda. Part two, in order to solve it, we must make those flower boxes transparent. We must be talking about the differences in the quality of the soil. And part three, as we make those flower boxes transparent, we must make it absolutely clear to all that the pink seed did not just go launch themselves into that poor rocky soil. So we must talk about history and we must talk about how the gardener's initial preference for red over pink set up the whole situation. Some people call that, you know, cultural racism. In our context, it's white supremacist ideology. We must acknowledge and address that because if we don't, even if we were to compel the red gardener to enrich the poor rocky soil today until it is as rich as the rich fertile soil, if she continues to prefer red over pink, she will continue to privilege red over pink going forward. So when I defined racism as a system of two things, doing two things, structuring opportunity and assigning value, we must attend to both. Well, that's all of our time for today, folks. I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to share that segment with you, as it's incredibly important to understand and also part of how we better talk about and see the impacts of systemic racism and also understand our response to that racism. That's it for now. We'll see you next week for our next episode as we continue to explore social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com and you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestas for this episode's opening and closing theme music. And for now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.